Ecclesiastes 3, 1 through 14. There is a time for everything and a season for every activity under the heavens. A time to be born and a time to die, a time to plant and a time to uproot, a time to kill and a time to heal, a time to tear down and a time to build, a time to weep and a time to laugh, a time to mourn and a time to dance, a time to scatter stones and a time to gather them, a time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing, a time to search and a time to give up, a time to keep and a time to throw away, a time to tear and a time tear and a time to mend, a time to be silent and a time to speak, a time to love and a time to hate, a time for war and a time for peace. What do workers gain from their toil? I have seen the burden God has laid on the human race. He has made everything beautiful in its time. He has also set eternity in the human heart. Yet no one can fathom what God has done from beginning to end. I know there is nothing better for people than to be happy and to do good while they live. That each of them may eat and drink and find satisfaction in all their toil. This is the gift of God. I know that everything God does will endure forever. Nothing can be added to it and nothing taken away from it. God does it so, the, so that people will fear him. The word of our Lord. Mm. Have a seat. Now pray with me one more time. Father, um, I, uh, I mean, our, our only hope this morning uh, is for your, war, your word um, to do its work. Um, I, I, I just pray that uh, kind of like the, the rain we're getting hopefully today um, and the ground that's so dry and hard for, for days of not rain, I pray that our hearts would be softened um, as this word falls fresh on us. Uh, and it would be nourishing. It would be the, the water that the roots uh, of our hearts need. Uh, to give us new life. So that's my prayer this morning, and I know that's the work that you do. So we have hope. Uh, pray this in your name. Amen. Um, remember those old toys? Uh, I don't remember the names of them, but they were the toys that, like, it was like a viewfinder. You would look into it, and it would give you this, like, little, like, like particular scene. Master. Viewmaster. There you go, Hal Garrett. It's a digital age, Hal. It's a deep cut. A deep cut. Um, if, the, if this is uh, one of your first Sundays, we are a church here that loves to have fun and, uh, and joke. Um, but the, the Viewmaster, okay? So you look through these, this little thing and, and you see this uh, just like complete scene, like a pastoral scene or like the scene of a farm or something. I think some of them you could even like click and they would like change. And I don't know what it was about that that made it so amazing, but there was something about that that was just fascinating that I wanted to put my eyes to it and I wanted to see what is, what's inside the frame here that this, this little toy has for me. Well, there's a little bit of an adult version. If you didn't experience that, we've got a little bit of an adult version that I want to show you. So go ahead and cue that video if you got it. Pretty amazing, right? Have y'all seen that before? That was floating around. Uh, I don't know. I've seen that video before, but I thought that that is actually a, a perfect picture of what I think this passage of scripture is trying to do for us this morning. That, that what this particular passage of Ecclesiastes, and actually what we believe all of the wisdom literature of the Bible is doing, is it's trying to give us a, a, a particular frame through which to view life. Because all of us have this. Every single one of us approaches life with a particular view. I see things a certain way. And because we know and we've heard that perception is reality, right? Like the way I see things is oftentimes the way that they are real, the way that, that, that they're the truest thing about, about me is the way that I see the world. And so if perception is reality, then the way that I view life 
is the way or the, what I believe about life, which is, of course, necessarily going to impact my experience of life. And so what this particular passage, and, and there were maybe pieces of it that were a little bit jarring to you as we read Ecclesiastes, what it's doing, the, the purpose of Ecclesiastes is to be like that frame, to be like that frame uh, as similar to what that artist was doing in his sculpture, to give us a particular view of life, to frame life through a godly lens, a godly perspective in all its times, in all the varying times of life that we find ourselves in. So this, this book, Ecclesiastes, and this particular passage is it gives us God's view of things. It gives us the way he sees things. It gives us the way he sees life. And so it gives us an opportunity to also see life through a relationship with him. And more and more, we are more and more able to answer his call to see things in our life the way that he sees things, which has an, a profound impact on our experience of life. And so this passage this morning has something for us. It has a particular place it wants to take us. It wants to take our heads and it wants to take the way that we're seeing life and it wants to adjust it a little bit because the way it's going to get us to look is not natural. It's not the natural inclination of the human heart through the human eyes to see life the way that God does. And so that's why we need this passage and that's why we need the wisdom literature. So last week, Dave introduced this new series and he invited us to come with him to summer camp. You remember that? And I don't know about you, my summer camp definitely did not have hot tubs, but if it did, Proverbs would be kind of like the hot tub of the wisdom literature, okay? Proverbs, would, if we're going to summer camp and we're in the, the wisdom literature and we're in summer school, Proverbs would be kind of like the hot tub that invites you to come in and soak. And it's maybe a little hot when you first dip your toe in, it takes you a little bit of time to get acclimated, but as you kind of sink down into it, it starts to seep into those, those kind of rough and sore places of your body and loosen your muscles and get you to think and see life in a different way. So Proverbs is the hot tub of the wisdom literature. Well, unfortunately for us this morning, Ecclesiastes is not the hot tub of wisdom literature. I want you to think of Ecclesiastes like the blob. How many of y'all have been to a summer camp that has a blob? Okay, I should have had a video of that because it sounds like not enough of you have seen the blob. The blob is what the book of Ecclesiastes is for us in the wisdom literature of the Bible. The blob is this massive bubble that floats out on the, on, the, on the water. And you usually have someone sitting on the end of it. They're usually quite small. And you have someone up on a tower who's usually quite large. And the person on the tower jumps down and lands on the end of the bubble. And it just launches and projects the small person on the end like 30 feet into the air. And you see them like, and they come down and hit the water. The book of Ecclesiastes is a lot like being on the blob, okay? The goal of this book in the wisdom literature of the Bible, the goal of it is to wake you up, to startle you, to even launch you into the air off of what you thought was solid ground, off of what you thought was a, was a, a perfectly appropriate and helpful way to view life. And it says, uh-uh. Look at it this way and see yourself fly through the air and land in the water. And we actually have a fairly mild passage. If you, if you like, take all the, the, the book of Ecclesiastes opens with this line, foolishness or meaninglessness. All of life is meaningless, is what it says at the very beginning of Ecclesiastes. And it's what it's hoping to do. It's intentional. The author of Ecclesiastes is intentional to tell us the most realistic painfully realistic truths of life in such a way that we can't escape them. 
that forces us to look a little bit different and say, wait a second, is the way that I've been living, which is based on the way that I choose to see life, is it real or is it folly, right? And that's the whole goal of all the wisdom literature is to give us wisdom, to take us out of our places of folly and to reframe us toward what's true. Dave talked about the word integrity. Proverbs talks a lot about the word integrity as living according to what's true, living according to what is actually most true about us. And Ecclesiastes and Proverbs and all the books of wisdom literature are giving us integrity. They're bringing us out of folly or foolishness. And Ecclesiastes in particular is so helpful, and and, and this is not an overstatement, but it is, I think, my favorite book in the Bible. And part of why I think it's my favorite book in the Bible is because it does not hold any punches on how hard life is. A lot of us have experiences of religion where we come to church and it kind of seems like whatever your real wrestlings and problems are, the things you got to leave outside. And you come in and you kind of just get fed this sense of, well, like God is just good. And if I paint God is good over top of it, then it's just going to make everything better. (laughs) Obviously God is good. And obviously I need a bigger dose of his goodness, but I also need the book of Ecclesiastes to tell me, yes, he's good, but yes, life is hard. And his goodness doesn't just magically make life not hard anymore. Life can feel a lot like that prose. Uh, that was the name of the artist who did that sculpture. It feels, life feels like his sculpture viewed from the side a lot of times, doesn't it? Like, what's this couch doing here? Like, what's this mess of things that's just this collection of things? And it feels complicated. It feels like a pile of junk. My life sometimes doesn't really feel like it fits together. And Ecclesiastes go, yes, exactly. And you need to start from that kind of a place if you're going to go anywhere in the study of wisdom. So we have all kinds of small, difficult things in our lives, right? like when toilets overflow and when our tires go flat and when kids wake you up three times in one night. All happened to me this week. But life's also hard in really big ways, right? Ways that aren't fun to joke over, like when relationships crumble. When suffering blows in like a hurricane and leaves debris all around when uh, death comes in and it settles, the death of a loved one, the death of a friendship, the death of a dream. And Ecclesiastes says, let's cut the crap, let's throw all the tough realities of life out on the table so we can't escape them. And let's wake up to the fact that many parts of life seem futile when we look around. And so the goal of this book and the goal of our passage is to give us a frame that acknowledges some of those things, that recognizes some of those things, that doesn't hide from them, but says, out of that place, here's what I want you to look at, child, son, daughter. Out of that place, I want you to lift your chin and look at things a particular way and gain a new perspective. And so there's two points that this particular passage of Scripture wants to make, okay? Two things it wants to do for us. The first comes in the first eight verses in that list of a time for this, a time for that. And this, is, this, this first point that Ecclesiastes is, is trying to make is it's, it's, it's telling us you need to embrace all of life's times and seasons. That's point number one. The, the path to wisdom, the path out of folly and into wisdom, the path to view life through the Lord's frame first means embracing all of life's times and seasons. 
And we see that in those first eight verses. The passage starts off with a really famous list. This is actually, I read somewhere, it's the most common, I don't know how they study these things, but it's the most common passage read at funerals. This passage right here is the most read passage of all at funerals. And I think that would be true of secular funerals and religious funerals. There's something about this that, that it, it's at, at appropriate times, we, we, I don't know, we gravitate toward it. It kind of hooks us. And we do something when we approach this list. Every single one of us, I promise you, if, if you didn't do this, you can raise your hand and tell me. Every single one of us, when we approach this list, we immediately do the same thing. We start judging and we start assigning good and bad to each of those things. Didn't you do it? It starts off, there is a time to be born and a time to die. Well, that's pretty easy right away. We're like, well, good. Time to be born, good. Time to die, bad. Then the next two support that. There's a time to plant. Beautiful. There's a time to uproot. Mm, Not so beautiful. There's a time to kill and a time to heal. So, so far, it seems like this is supporting our theory that this is just a list and some of them are good and some of them are bad. And the next few, they also do that. A time to tear down and a time to build up. A time to weep and a time to laugh a time to mourn and a time to dance. And so it seems obvious that this is a list of desirable and undesirable things. And of course, to some extent, yes, the certain things in that list are less desirable. (laughs) Some of those things are clearly more desirable on the average day. But what if we stopped and we asked ourselves, why is it that I immediately start doing that to that list? Why do I immediately start separating this as if it's like left column bad, right column good? Because if you notice, that wasn't the way it it did it. Sometimes the first one mentioned was the bad thing. Sometimes the second one mentioned was the bad thing. So why is it that we try to assign this? When I think we do this because you and I approach our life already without the Lord with a particular frame. Every single one of us, the the, the most natural, the most human way to approach life is out of this kind of a frame. There are good things in my life that I want. There are bad things in my life that I don't want. And if I can have more and more and more of those good things, and if I can have less and less and less of those bad things, then my life is going to turn out. Then I will be happy. Then I will be satisfied. Then I will be fulfilled. And so life becomes most naturally this this practice or this, this journey or this labor of minimizing all those bad things in my life, maximizing all those good things, looking for all the good experiences, running from all the bad experiences. And so we have a very binary view of life. That's the most natural frame of the human heart. Because all of us are after the best life we can have. We want the best life we can have for ourselves. We want the best life for our children. As a father, my goodness, I would love if I could write the script of Kate, Everett, Eden, and Gracie's lives. I would love that. I would include all those good things. I would take half of that list that I said was good and I would just pump it full of it and I'd take all those bad things away. And we would all want to do that. But there's a few problems with that frame of viewing life. And they're not so surprising. A lot of us live understanding that we have these same problems with the way of viewing life. And yet we still view it through that frame. The first problem with viewing life in such a binary, there's good, there's bad. If I can get the more good and less of the bad, then I'll have a happy life. The problem with that is that it assumes, number one, it assumes that we know enough to judge what is right and what is wrong. We, 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 we assume that we know enough of, of, of what to judge and how to judge what is good and what is bad. 
And so when we see this kind of list, we inherently assume that we're good judges of which things are good for us and which things are bad for us. But of course, if we stop and we recognize that this this is wisdom literature and it's trying to teach us something, we would recognize that these things are not necessarily good or bad. They're not black or white. There's actually a lot more gray in here than you'd think. Take that first one. There is a time for death. Many of you have experienced in the life of a loved one who's passed that tipping point. That, that moment when, for whatever reason, it's not necessarily a doctor's prognosis, it just there's a sense in which it's time for this person to go. That, that specific point when it becomes clear that death is inevitable. And in this case, at this moment, it's actually good. It's actually better. Doesn't mean it's easy. Doesn't mean it's joyful. Doesn't even mean it's beautiful. It can be ugly and awful, but, but you recognize in, in God's economy, as believers especially, in these moments we can recognize it is now time for this person to go. There is a time for uprooting. There is a time to pull up something that has been planted. This is true both in growing plants and in growing your life. There's, there are moments in time when it's time for this thing that I have labored over, the seeds that I've planted and watered and tended and weeded and, and, and nurtured to say, it's done. It's got to be pulled up, whether that's a career, uh, whether that's a particular dream, whether that's a physical activity. Uh, many of us have probably continued to do certain things in our life that our bodies said a long time ago, you probably need to be done with that. Could be a relationship. And we all understand, I think inherently, we all recognize that there is a certain kind of folly in holding on to something too long that we needed to let go. Just moving down the list, there is a time for weeping and mourning. We would all get that. Absolutely. There is a time for weeping and mourning, just like there is a time for laughter and dancing. We might not like it in those times of weeping and mourning, but when we're in them, we recognize this is what's good. And when someone comes in to bring their laughter and their dancing into your time of weeping and mourning, then you really know that it's the time for weeping and mourning, don't you? And so we intuitively know these things. We, we I think, intuitively recognize that this list isn't just black and white. And if I can just have only the good things and none of the bad things, then I'll have a good life. We, we recognize to some extent that there's folly in that. And so wisdom, the book of Ecclesiastes, looks at this and it says, in God's world, And in God's timing, there is a time for everything. There is a season for everything under heaven. The second problem uh, that we can recognize with having such a binary view of life is that if we are looking at life within the human frame, the human lens, okay, if if I'm looking at life through kind of the most natural way I like to see my life, that that can lock me out of some of the very experiences that God has given me for my good. That if I, if I only see my life so binary as black and white, then that will actually lock me away from, it will block me off experientially. Because remember, how I see things is oftentimes how I then experience things. Doing this can block me off from the very experiences the Lord is giving me for my good. So let me ask you a few questions. Are you avoiding something Because in your life equation, it's a bad thing. 
and you won't let yourself believe it could possibly be good for you. Is there a fruit that you've been tending that needs to be uprooted? Maybe because God knows that it's actually a weed in your life. Is there something that you are embracing that you need to refrain from embracing, as it said, because it's toxic to you and God knows that? Are there stones that you have been gathering and you've been gathering and you've been gathering and you're building your own little tower of Babel and the Lord is saying it's time to cast those stones away? Is there something that you're searching for that the Lord is saying, give up the search, let it go? Or have you been silent for far too long because it was just so much easier and now the Lord is saying, it's time to speak up? You see how if I look at that list and I look at my life and I, and I, and I look really carefully at what are the things that I'm avoiding from this list? And then I ask myself, Lord, what if you have a different way of seeing this? What if you know there's something that I need for my good, but left to my own self, I'm never going to choose it? Then we can see a little bit of where Ecclesiastes in this passage is taking us. And so you could go through that entire list and you could pray this prayer, and I would invite you to go back to this list this week. Trust me, every time I went back into the sermon this week, there was more and more coming out. Remember, that's the wisdom literature. It's hard candy, like Dave said. So go back to this list and pray this prayer to the Lord. Lord, where in my frame of seeing the world, where in my economy of life, the way I see things, where I have decided what is good for me and what is bad for me, where I've decided what will give me the good life and what will not, and where are you calling me to put those things down? Where are you calling me to stop and look up at you? So the first half of this passage, chapter or verses one through eight, that list, it's telling us, put down, put down your judgments, put down your expectations of what you have decided is the good life for you. Look through the Lord's frame and see that for everything there is a season. There is a time for everything under heaven. But the second half of the passage, okay, verses nine following are really beautiful because it doesn't just leave you with putting things down. It doesn't just say, just accept all those things, just, just like have a really good picture of life, like whatever the Lord blows in, just take it, okay? It gives you the thing you gotta pick up. Because if, if the passage, it's not me, if the passage is asking you to put down your judgments on what's good and bad, I better hope it's gonna give me something to replace that with, and it does. So second, okay, not only does wisdom teach us to embrace all of life's seasons, but in the second half of the passage, Wisdom teaches us to embrace the longing and to find satisfaction. To embrace the longing and find satisfaction. Well, where do we get that in the passage? Well, look at verse nine. Verse nine, after we've just read that list, and I heard a couple of you chuckle when she was reading it. I'm glad you did, because it should make you pause. It says, what do workers gain from their toil? And we can read that, and I can read that, you know, 15 times, and, and somehow it might not, I might not recognize how that's talking to me, because we're all workers, aren't we? W which one of you would say, I'm not working for anything. I'm not toiling for anything. None of us. Every single one of us is going through life, and we're toiling. We're working. We're working hard for our families. We're working hard for the relationships that we're in. We're working hard as fathers. 
We're working hard as mothers. We're toiling. And after this list, after Ecclesiastes has forced us to look at things a little bit of a different way, the author asks you, what do you gain from your toil? And that is the question, isn't it? Because with all this seeking and striving and searching and working to create a life that's meaningful for me, I've just seen that half of that list are things that I would say I don't want. And it's like Ecclesiastes is saying, when you're seeking and you're striving in your own wisdom, you're trying to build this life for you based on your understanding of what's good, based on your side of the list that you think you want to have. Ecclesiastes is saying, what gain are you actually getting? Because I've just seen that if I could paint the picture of my life, I'd probably omit all these things that are actually things the Lord wants to bring in my life to grow me, to mature me, to give me some deeper experience of himself. There's a, a, again, blob moment, a gripping kind of arresting example that another part of the book of Ecclesiastes brings to us. Okay, remember this idea of like, we're going to give you the hard reality of life and see what you do with it. It talks about, this is kind of toward the end of chapter two of Ecclesiastes. It talks about how whether you're wise or whether you're foolish, no matter how well you live your life, you're both going to die, right? The wise and the fool both dies and all the work that they labor for just gets picked up by someone else. And how much control do you have over what they do with your work? That's what it asks. Kind of a wake up, like, I, don't, I didn't think about that. I kind of thought I'd live forever. Kind of thought like any, everyone behind me would just keep doing the things the way that I do them. And Ecclesiastes says, no. When you, when you die, your work is just going to get passed on to someone else and you have absolutely no control over what they're going to do with the life that you've built. And that's the place out of which this author is saying, ask yourself the hard question, what work or what do you gain from all your toil? What do you gain from all your work? And what it's trying to do and, and the thing it's trying to get us to pick up is it's trying to lift our eyes and it's trying to say, as long as your head is down here and as long as you're just looking at the things that you're working on and, and your own judgments of what's good and bad in your life, then it's always going to be a burden. And so the author says this in verse 11, God has made everything beautiful in its time. He has also set eternity in the human heart. Yet no one can fathom what God has done from beginning to end. And so what it is that the author is getting us to, to want to pick up and embrace is this longing for the Lord. This longing for the part of himself and the part of eternity that he has put inside you. That, that sense of something more, that, that sense of something greater, that the thing that actually will drive you to work and work and work because you know there's something out there that you're trying to get that you need. Whether you call that the, the God-shaped hole in your heart, whether that's the feeling you get and, and the reason you practice art, the reason you practice music, this thing you're seeking, if it's the thing you're trying to get when you're looking for relationships, Ecclesiastes is saying, pick up the longing. Embrace the longing because it comes from eternity in your heart. And so we embrace our limited view of life, right? We recognize that I don't, I don't see all the, 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 you know, eventualities. I can't see how this thing that I actually think is a bad thing is actually going to be a gift for me. I embrace that I have a limited view and pick up a longing for the Lord. 
And that word longing is interesting, right? Because we don't long with our heads. We long with our hearts. And so what the book of Ecclesiastes and what this particular passage is asking you to do is, will you long for a relationship with Jesus? Will you take the longing of your heart and will you actually seek a relationship with his heart? Because what our hearts, we know this is true, the Bible tells us this is true, what our hearts are most deeply longing for is the Lord. They're longing for a relationship with him. They're longing to have that space that we try to fill with so many other things to be filled by him. And that is why last week, Dave talked about it, and every week we're going to be going back to it because the wisdom literature says it, Fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. That, that a relationship, a deep relationship with the Lord where I have attached all my hopes to him. And yeah, there's a little bit of fear there because I've, I've opened myself up to a relationship with God himself. That the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. That when I actually begin to attach the longing of my heart to a relationship with Jesus, to his heart, that is the thing that I have to pick up when I've put down my own view of life, when I've put down my own judgment on what's good and what's bad for me. And our passage in the next verse says something really beautiful. It says that when you embrace the longing, when you embrace the fact that you're a limited person living with something limitless inside of you, you are going to feel longing. When you embrace that, what you get is satisfaction. And man, that word, whoo, Satisfaction. I don't even know what that would feel like to actually be fully satisfied. But I can tell you that when I'm looking at my life and I'm looking at the lives of my kids and I'm writing the script, I'm saying, if only I could have more of this, if only I could have less of that, if only I could have more gathering of stones and less throwing away of stones, then that will get me satisfaction. That's what I know. I don't know what the satisfaction would feel like when I get it, but I know that that's what I want. And this passage is saying that when you put down your limitedness, and you pick up his limitlessness, you will feel a longing. You'll feel the fact that there's a gap there, but you're seeking the relationship with the Lord. And it's out of that place that comes satisfaction. Look at me, uh, or look with me at verses 12 and 13. So after the the author has said this, he's kind of set us up. He's brought us to this place of saying, whatever you're trying to get, it's not gonna give it to you. Embrace the longing, he says. I know that there is nothing better for people than to be happy and to do good while they live. Very simple. To be happy and to do good while they live, that each of them may eat and drink and find satisfaction in all their toil. This is the gift of God. I love how he still calls it toil. (laughs) In all their toil, if I'm seeking after the heart of the Lord, if I'm seeking after a relationship with him, then in my toil doesn't magically cease to be toil, but in my toil, I then find satisfaction. That my food and my drink and these these very physical things that I do in my life begin to take on some holy meaning. They begin to give me that satisfaction that my heart has been seeking for all along. So I want to give us, as we close, I want to give us, I want to actually take us out of this passage because... Ecclesiastes still kind of leaves us with a little bit of wanting. It never quite gives you the final answer. But we have the rest of the Bible that can give us more of that. So I actually want to take us to a passage in James very briefly. 
This is actually the very first words that James, the brother of Jesus, writes. And it's a little bit ironic because James is considered the only wisdom literature book of the New Testament. Scholars lump James in with Ecclesiastes and Proverbs and some of these books because it's practical wisdom, but on the New Testament side of things. So listen to what James says, the very first words he wants you to hear. Count it all joy, my brothers and sisters, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. So there's two words in there that I hate but I think they're really important for us. And I think they're the key to unlocking this kind of longing for the Lord that brings satisfaction and living in the tension of the time for this and the time for that. And it's these two words. It's the word count and the word let. The word count means to consider. It means to, to, to choose to make an active choice to see something a particular way and oftentimes a way that I don't naturally like to see it. Notice he says, count it all joy. I don't care if it doesn't feel like joy, count it joy. Turn your heart toward it and say, it's joyful when I can meet trials of various kinds. Because I know that the testing of my faith, we know this guys, come on, we know that testing, that trial, that that pruning, right? That shaping is painful, but it's also the very method by which we grow, the method by which we are transformed and we mature. So James says, count it joy when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And then the second word that I hate, probably more than the first, let. Let steadfastness have its full effect. If I'm letting something happen, it means I'm passive. I don't like to be passive. If you all know me, I don't like to be passive. I don't want to let anything have its effect. I want to make something have its effect. And I want to make it have the effect that I want to have or that I want it to have. And James is saying, let that steadfastness, let the the fruit of that suffering, the fruit of all those bad things on the list that you said, I hope I make it through my life and I never have any of those things. Let it have its effect. Let the steadfastness have its full effect so that, and this is hard to believe, you will be perfect and complete lacking in nothing. We just said we're lacking in all kinds of things. So clearly this isn't saying I just get all the things I want. So this is talking about a deeper sense of satisfaction again, that I can, I can actually be satisfied if I can be someone who counts it all joy when I suffer and I can let the steadfastness produced by that suffering have its effect. I can actually be a human being on this earth who has some experience of perfect and complete even though knowing we're never going to get perfect and we're never going to get complete. And if you're sitting there and you're like, Jonathan, this is too hard. I can't count it joy. You just told me to count it joy. Is this some like, you know, like power of positive thinking kind of thing? And let steadfastness have its full. This feels so human-centered. Okay, exactly. If, If this is just about you and if this is just about me telling you go home this week and just I want you to count all these things joy, like write them up on the wall and say that's joy and that's joy. I might be saying you need to do that, but that's not where this ends. You have a savior. You have a savior, Jesus, who counted it all joy to suffer for you. And he let the effect of that suffering have its full effect for you. 
when Jesus was laying in the garden and he said those words to his father, he said, Father, if it is your will for me to go up on that cross, then I'll do it. But if you could, let that cup pass from me. He chose to count it all joy to suffer for you. And he chose to let the effect of that suffering have its full effect for you so that you and me can be people who experience all those different times of life and can know I have a savior who's with me because I have a relationship with the one who's putting me through those things. Jesus counted it all joy to endure the cross. Hebrews 12.2 says, looking to Jesus, we are to look to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising its shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. And so we embrace all the times, just like Jesus did. He embraced all the times of his life, even the time to die for the sake of you and me, to build that relationship, to make it possible for us to be people that pursue him even in our suffering that pursue him even in all the back and forth blacks and whites of the times of our life. And it makes it possible for us to also count it all joy in all the areas of our life. Because we know we have him in all those areas and he is beautiful. Pray. Father, thank you um, that it was your joy that you counted it joy, that you chose that moment in the garden when you could have chosen something different, that you chose to count it joy to suffer for me. And thank you that your steadfastness, that you are steadfast, that your faithfulness is steadfastness for me. And I have a God who has come to me and said, I want to take you on a journey of understanding what faithfulness in all the times of your life look like. And so I'm going to throw those things at you. I'm going to throw left and right these curveballs of different life experiences. And I'm, what I'm building in you, what I'm, what I'm pulling out of you is that same Christ-centered steadfastness for this life. So Lord, help us find our satisfaction in you. Even today as we, uh, as men and as fathers that can be so dissatisfied all the time. As a, as, a, as a man and a father myself that can so often look at things in my life and just feel dissatisfaction would maybe even today be a day that I can be satisfied, not in all the different circumstances going the way I want, but in the fact that I have a relationship with you, that I fear you, that my hope is in you, that I'm anchored in you. So do that uh, for all of us this week. Pray this in your name. Amen.